The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. We're going to be looking at uh, Philippians 1, but first I want to do something. Uh, we put something up on the website in 2016, and I thought I'd like to make this clear. Um, a disciple, according to the Word of God, a disciple is a true follower of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. And the, the mission of the church is to make disciples. That's very clear. We're told that over and over again. Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen, the Great Commission, uh, is as clear as it can be that this is what we've been sent in the world to do, is to make disciples of Jesus Christ who make disciples. And so this is what discipleship is, leading people to increasingly submit all of life to the loving lordship and empowering presence of Jesus Christ. The thing that uh, God wants to show in our lives is the, the powerful work of Christ in changing us, transforming us. We'll see that in the text today. The examples of disciple-making, and disciple-making comes in a lot of varieties, and, and some of you have been exposed to them. There's one-on-one discipleship where one person, one mature believer meets with a new believer, and, and there is an influence that takes place as they get in the Word together, and, and the believer who's been walking with Christ is to be able to show this new believer how to walk with Christ, how to obey his commands by example. And then there are other things like DNA groups, which are uh, groups of three people, three women or three men that meet together. And that DNA stands for discovery, nurture, and act, actions. Uh, it's, it's, it's another form of discipleship, and there are others. But I wanted to show you our purpose and plan. This is on the website, but I, nobody's, nobody's seen it, I don't think. But this is what it says. Our desire and goal is to be a church that, like Jesus, this is a result of the work of discipleship, that we, like Jesus, love God supremely above all things. That's the great commandment we have been given in the Word of God. In John 22, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then to love one another sacrificially. Jesus in John 13 said, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another the way I have loved you. And that's sacrificially. He laid down his life for us. And so we want to be a church that loves one another sacrificially. And then third, uh, we want to be a congregation of disciples who serve the world joyfully. We talk about serving the world. That can happen inwardly and outwardly. For example, this uh, BBS that's coming up real quick. This is an outrage to the community, and we try to host usually about 100 kids for a week. We try to raise all the money so we don't have to charge them anything. And they can come here and they'll be exposed to the gospel and hopefully we'll get exposed to their families. And um, and so that's that's one of the ways that we serve the world joyfully. Another is we have people that are involved in the uh, food pantry in town. And uh, what happens is they discover that this is really a key part of growing as a disciple as you engage yourself in service. You see, our basic problem is, according to the Bible, is because of the fall, we are selfish. We are always watching out for ourselves. That's the effect of the fall. And so when you run into somebody who's not like that, it's kind of shocking, isn't it? It's like you can tell that this person is different because they care more about others than they care about themselves. And so these are the things. And then we, we, so this is what, for that reason, we want to be that kind of church. This is what we do. We meet on Sunday to worship God. This is our uh, time of worshiping God, lifting his name up. We try to sing songs that elevate him, that comes from our mouths as we sing. We sing words of praise to him uh, regarding his glory and his greatness and what he's done for us in Christ Jesus. And then we gather in small groups weekly to disciple and be discipled by that experience of being with fellow believers and being in the Word together, uh, praising and praying together and so forth. And then we form gospel-centered ministry teams to serve our world. Now, some people get hung up on that. So, wait a minute, what are we, why are we serving the world? I thought we weren't supposed to love the world. Stop loving the world, because all that's in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the bright, boastful pride of life. But there is a way to love the world, the way God loves the world. Anybody know John 3.16? Does God love the world? 
Yes, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. So he's called us to love the world and to serve them in the name of Christ. And so that's why we form ministry teams and people join ministry teams to do that very thing. Like there's a group of men who come down here and put these nice, comfortable, soft chairs out here every Sunday morning so that you can sit there comfortably in, in those chairs. And I mean that, they do. They come down and work for a couple of hours, getting everything prepared, and then they tear everything down and put it away. That is ministry. It's a part of being on a ministry team. Now, so this is what I want to say. Our mission is making disciples. That's why we exist. That's the mission of every church, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And disciples are those who love God supremely, that is above all things, who love one another sacrificially. We're we're willing to lay down our lives for each other. We saw this in Acts 2 a few weeks ago, if you remember, that the people in the first church loved each other so much they were willing to sell their properties, all that they possess, and give to meet the needs of others. And then we want to serve the world joyfully. That is our goal in making disciples. Uh, And we don't believe that what we've been called to do is simply to lead people to Christ. We, the, Jesus didn't say in Matthew 28, go there, go, therefore go into all the world and make converts. He said, go into the world and make disciples. There's something wrong with me if I don't become a disciple, if I put faith in Christ and yet I don't grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Something has short-circuited. Something's wrong. Now, it is possible to get into that condition for a short period of time, 1 Corinthians 3 tells us, but it's not a good position to be in. It's not a good situation or condition to be in. So we we, we do what we do as a process to bring people to discipleship, and I wanted to show you this. This is our process. Uh, Sunday morning worship is is to enhance our love for the living God. If you notice, the songs that we sing have words in them that extol him, that lift him up. And when you sing from your heart, what you are doing is you're loving God with all of your heart. And so we come together, we sing, we hear the word of God. We want to understand what God is speaking to us. And we pray together. And our whole purpose on the Sunday mornings is to bring us to love God supremely. Above all things. In fact, that's why we put these hard chairs out. And so you have to pay a little price to sit on those chairs. And then secondly, we have house fellowships. House fellowships are small groups of people that meet together and spend some time in the Word of God together. They continue in the Apostles' Doctrine. And uh, we break bread together uh, or desserts. <laughs> and our Bible study, the big problem with it is we have so many desserts that the, uh, the weight of the group has increased greatly. <clears throat> so we're trying to figure out what to do about that. And then ministry teams. So out of these slow ministry teams, people joining up with others in fulfilling the call to be servants of Christ in this fallen world. So that's why we do what we do. It's the reason we have Sunday morning service and we do Sunday morning service the way that we do. We want to lift up Christ. We want to extol him. I heard, uh, I read, I haven't heard uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he's been gone a long time, but I read this statement of his. He said, the one subject that I always feel like when I talk about it, and he was an incredible preacher, he says, the one subject I never feel like I do a good, a good enough job is the love of Christ. He said, I always feel so feeble and incompetent to describe the love of Christ. It's so far beyond us. And so uh, what we try to do on Sunday mornings is preach the word of God so that our hearts will be impacted. Now, we're told that God supernaturally causes the word of God to sink into the hearts of his people. That's a work of God. I don't have the ability to do that, but God does. He has the ability to take his word as we proclaim it and cause it to penetrate hearts and to cause our hearts to lift up Christ and lift up the Father in adoration and praise that we come to love him supremely above all things. And, uh, and so we, this is why we do what we do. It's the reason we have Sunday morning. It's the reason we have small groups. Uh, there are other ways that we do discipleship. I meet with about four different guys individually during the week, most weeks. And uh, 
we can do one-on-one discipleship and we can do small groups like little DNA groups, and that's great. But what our purpose is in existence is to make disciples for Jesus Christ. That's what we've been called to do. That's why Christ created us as a church. It's why he creates the church of Jesus Christ is so that we would make disciples who follow Christ. And I just wanted to put that up there and talk about that that much just so because what we're going to be looking at now is Paul's heart that is so overwhelmed with joy that he can hardly contain himself. And what he's happy about is the people that he took the gospel to 10 years before this letter was written. He's now writing to them and telling them how happy he is, how much joy he has because they are partners in the gospel and they are making disciples. So this is what I want you to turn to, if you will, to uh, uh, Philippians. I'm almost there. Philippians, which comes right after Ephesians. Uh, in Philippians chapter 1, I'd like you to look at, uh, we've, we started looking at this passage, we only looked at the first couple of verses, but let's look at verses 3 down through um, verse 11. What, he's, what Paul's going to do here, I'm going to read this to you first, but uh, what Paul's doing here is he is expressing the joy of gospel fruit. He is so overwhelmed in joy regarding these people. This church has been in existence for 10 years. He went to Philippi on the second missionary journey, which was in about 50 AD, and now he's writing in about 60 AD from prison in Rome. In fact, this is one of the most amazing things about this passage. He's talking about his joy and he's writing from prison. Now here's his, here's his uh, this is Paul's explosive expression of thanksgiving in, these, in verses 3 through 11. Listen to what he says. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Every single time I think about you, he says, I thank God. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for all of you. You see all those superlatives there? All of you, all the time, every time I remember you, I give thanks to God. Now he's in prison. And he's in prison for preaching the gospel. Why didn't he throw up his hands and said, you know, we need to go to another part of the world because it's getting too dangerous to preach the gospel here. What did he do? Well, as most of you know, he preached the gospel in prison. Because they used to, they always had, uh, while he was in prison, was actually house arrest, they would have different guards come and be with him for four hours. Guess what they heard? They got the gospel preached to them. And so he was always had a, a rotating group of, of gu- prison guards that he gave the gospel to. And so he counted that that's where God wanted him for that period of time. And many of them came to faith in Jesus Christ. And he goes on. In fact, let me read this to you in New Living Translation. It's just so much easier to understand. He says, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus returns. In other words, until Jesus returns, we are under this command of Jesus Christ to go and preach the gospel, make disciples, until Jesus comes back, and then the job's going to be completed. So we, got, we can do it today and tomorrow and the next day until Jesus comes. And then he expresses his confidence in him, in them, this confidence that he has concerning them. And he says in verse 7, So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, that is God's grace, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news, the gospel. God knows how much I love you and long for you with tender compassion of Jesus Christ. Isn't that something that he writes this letter from a prison, and being in prison, and he's telling them how much he thanks them. He hasn't said a word about how he needs their help. And then he goes on, finally, and he expresses his 
thanksgiving for them by praying for them. This is what he says. He says, that's why I pray like this. I pray that your love will overflow more and more. That your love will flow over forever, overflow more and more. What does that remind you of in John 7? What does that remind you of in John 7? John seven thirty seven. You know, sometimes I worry because I... I keep going back to the same verses over and over and over again because they've had such impact on me. John seven thirty seven is where Jesus said, on the, he was at, it was during the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was a day in which they didn't do the ceremony of taking the water from the pool of Siloam back to the temple. And so Jesus is sitting there, and all these people are moving around, and he starts speaking really loud, and he says, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then he explains, he who believes in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John explains, and I always get a kick out of this because this was written 60 years before he wrote it. I mean, this, was, this happened 60 years before he wrote it. But when he's writing this, he said, he was talking about the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given because Christ had not yet been glorified. And I've got really good news for you. Every person who's put faith in Christ has the Holy Spirit living in them, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. And so you have the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is like a river of life flowing through you. He will fill your life with joy. And so, so uh, Paul is giving God thanks that their love will overflow more and more because the Spirit has come to take up residence in them. And then he says, for I want you to understand what really matters. Have you ever said that to your child? You know, I really wish you could come to really have some understanding and knowledge so that you could understand what's really important. Somebody this week I was reading, it said, uh, we used to say, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Now we have to say, put down your phone, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Isn't it amazing how easy it is to get into this trap of not understanding what's really important in our lives? Can you think your way through the Bible? I think every Christian should be able to think their way through the Bible. All I mean by that is, where do we start? What's the beginning? You all should yell out, Genesis. (laughs) Genesis, the beginning, right? And you know the story of Genesis. You know the story of the creation and the fall. And then you know the story of calling of Abraham. And you know about his sons, Isaac, Jacob, and and his 12 sons. And uh, you, you know the story, how it goes in that book. And then you know the story of Exodus, how God brought Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And, and you can go on through the Bible. Well, guess what? We ought to know the Bible that well. We ought to know the story of the Scriptures. If we actually are followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to at least understand what the story of the Bible is. In fact, parents ought to be able to tell their children the story of the Bible in their own words. You you can't get every detail, but you can tell the big picture. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. This is what Paul's praying for them. I pray this for us. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. And then he tells you what that is. The righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. This is not justification. This is sanctification. This isn't that you have a perfect standing before God. It's the fact that the very character of Jesus Christ, Christ causes that to dwell within you, and it changes the way you live. There's no such thing as a person who has come to faith in Christ who hasn't been changed by this relationship with Christ. Jesus changes people. And that's what he's talking about. May you always be filled. That is, constantly under the influence of the fruit of your salvation. That is the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. Why? Why is that so important, Paul? And he tells us, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. You know, people aren't impressed when we tell them we're Christians. That's not impressive at all. What they're, what they're going to be impressed by is when they can see Christ. They may not know what they're seeing, but when they see Christ in our lives... That's the thing that's going to get their attention because you see the Holy Spirit, it's a part of his ministry to open the eyes of people to the glory of Christ. 
And so when they begin to see it in your life, see the glory of Christ, that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ within you, it's going to have an impression upon them. Now, what I'd like to do is bear down just a little bit and look a little closer at this passage. So notice, this is the way it is in your little outline there. What he does, he expresses his affection by giving thanks for them, first of all, in verses 3 through 6. The depth of his thanksgiving is amazing. He's basically saying, this is how I feel about you. I think some people read this and it's almost embarrassing to them. After all, why is Paul getting so emotional? Well, he actually thinks what's happened to them should cause us to get emotional. I heard a guy tell about, uh, you know, Jesus, when we were in Luke, we saw this, where Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember, they, he found, they, they found out who it was that sold Jesus out. And Jesus goes into Gethsemane. They found out that somebody was going to sell him out. And, and so Jesus goes into Gethsemane to pray. He went there to talk to his father. But if you read the passage... The, the, the description of this, you see, he got there to address his father and he couldn't see his father because this process had already begun that he began to experience what it was like for the father to turn his back upon him. And it says he's in agony. He, he sweats, as it were, drops of blood. You know, there is a condition, I forget the technical term for it. Uh, that reminds me of a, <laughs> a story I told my wife I heard last week. This guy went to his doctor and said, Doctor, I don't, I don't know what's wrong with me. Something's wrong with me because I can't even do the house chores anymore. Just the stuff I used to do around the house for my wife. I just can't get it done. And so the doctor says, well, let's, let me give you a checkup. So he gives him a checkup. And then the guy says to him, please tell me just in plain language. No medical jargon. So the, the doctor said, in, you're just a plain lazy person. You're just plain lazy. And so then the guy says, could you give me the medical term so I could share it with my wife? <laughs> well, Jesus, when he goes into the garden, he wants to talk to his father, but instead he feels this distance. I mean, think of this. For the first time in all eternity, the son experiences what it's like to be cut off from the father. And it says he, he sweat as drops of blood. I heard this story last week. This really happened. A, a guy was, some friends had gone to a pool, took their children with them, and uh, had a great day. And they got, uh, when the day was over, they went and got in the car. And then one of the fathers noticed that his three-year-old wasn't in the car. And so he ran back to the pool, and there was a little boy at the bottom of the pool. And so he dives in, gets him out, and they revived him. And he took him to the hospital. He stayed in the hospital all night. And he had all these specks on his face. And the doctor said, what happened? He, called, he told him the technical term for this. And he said, what happened was, when he knew he was drowning, he was yelling for your, probably yelling for you so strongly, crying out to you underwater, that it caused his, his capillaries to break. And it was all this, these spots all over him. And this guy says, think of what Jesus was going through in the, cross, in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he's facing, he just had said, remember what he said? Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me without me drinking it. And then he stopped himself. And he says, not my will, but your will be done. And he was willing to go that from you, for you. Now, the Bible says that Jesus despised the shame that he was going to suffer on the cross. He stripped naked, beaten to a pulp, and hung on a cross, a criminal. He died a criminal's death. It says he despised the shame, but because of the joy set before him, he endured it. Well, what was set before him? I mean, he had always had a relationship with the Father. He was going to have that back. He's always been the, the eternal Son of God. What changed? The only thing he had after the cross that he didn't have before was you. He bought you. He purchased you by his own blood. And it was the joy of having you, of purchasing you, of paying for your sin, that he actually could carry this work out. 
Isn't that amazing? What a Savior we have. And so you can see why Paul is so overwhelmed as he sees the effects of these people believing the gospel. That's why he's so thankful. The cause of his thankfulness is right there in verse 5, as you see it, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Your participation in the gospel. The word participation is koinonia. You've heard that term before. You know, sometimes you go to koinonia fellowships and so forth. Koinonia means partnership. You remember Peter, James, and John? They were partners in their fishing business. It was this word. And he says, I am overwhelmed because you have become partners in the gospel with me. You own this in the same way that I do. And so he's just effusive in his thanksgiving for them. And so he says to them, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace while believing. That's actually out of Romans 15. In other words, the way you get joy is while you're believing. In fact, remember what Peter said? Even though you haven't seen him, you love him, and though you're not seeing him now, but believing in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And so Paul, writing from prison, writing from prison, and he's telling these believers how just knowing that they are partners in the gospel fills his heart with joy even while he's in prison. Amazing. Because they're participating with him, with him as partners in the gospel. And what he meant by that wasn't just that they stood on the street corner and proclaimed the gospel. They lived lives that gave credence to the gospel. Sometimes I wonder if, if we were to share, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, would people be surprised? Have you ever met somebody that you found that they were a disciple of Jesus and you thought, I knew that. It was easy to see that in their lives, their attitude, the way they talk about others. And so the cause of his thanksgiving is these people are partners in the gospel. And he's writing to them. And, send, and then his confidence, in, the confidence in, his, in his thanksgiving is found in verse 6 where it says, for I am confident in this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, I know it's true that Jesus began a work in you of conforming you to the image of Christ, and that's going to be completed. But that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is God's going to complete this work of using you as instruments in his hands to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going to keep on doing this. And that's why he was so grateful and so thankful that they were partners in the gospel. In verses 3 through 6, you actually have kind of a cameo of the whole epistle, the main theme, the, the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. Think about that. Do you see yourself as being a partner in the gospel? And you know what, where it starts? It starts with us loving the gospel. It starts with us coming to see in a clear way just how glorious the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Now, if that sounds like code to you, let me explain what the gospel is. The word gospel means good news, and the good news of Jesus Christ is this is what God has done in Jesus Christ. He sent his eternal son into the world to become an an incarnate son who took on our flesh, and he died for our sins And he was buried, and God raised him from the dead three days later as a testimony that he had received his work on the cross as payment in full for your sins. That's the good news. See, a lot of people think that Christianity is a religion. It's not a religion. Religion is what people do in order to try to please God and to gain something from him. I want him to give me something, and so I'm going to earn it by doing these good works. The gospel is the good news that God has done something. Well, what does he want out of me? He wants me to trust him. He wants me to receive this as a gift and not as something that I have earned. He wants me to receive it as a gift. That's faith. That's what faith is. For by grace are you saved through faith. Grace means God giving himself to you freely without you asking him. And faith is you trusting, believing this, this report that God has sent his son into the world to die for sinners like you and me. 
And so he is thrilled that this gospel has so penetrated their hearts that they not only call themselves believers, but they actually are partners in the gospel. They live under the influence of the gospel, and they communicate the gospel to those they have conversations with. When was the last time you had a gospel conversation with somebody that wasn't a believer? I don't answer me, but that's, I think about that. When was the last time you actually had a conversation with somebody about the gospel? It's the most thrilling thing in all the world because it's experiencing what it's like to be a partner of the gospel of Christ. And so his confidence is going to continue until this work of God is finished when Christ comes back. So I don't know when Jesus is coming back. Now, there are some guys who do, and they write books about it. Uh, But I don't know when he's coming back. But I know this, when he comes back, we won't have to preach the gospel anymore because it will have been fulfilled completely, and he would have returned and gotten his people. Now, what he does in verses 7 and 8 is he explains his affection by revealing his confidence in them. This is why I feel this way about you. He explains his confidence based on four important things about their partnership in the gospel. So verses, this is uh, verses 7 and 8. He says, he uses this expression to feel this way, if you notice that, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you. This becomes, this word is, that phrase is, an, is a translation of a word. I don't know, you don't know, do you, need, you don't need to know the Greek word. The Greek word is phroneo, or phronomai, or phronema, it means uh, Mindset. You know what a mindset is? You've heard of worldview. We've used that kind of, you hear that expression used. It's my way of looking at things. My mindset is how I view everything. The lens through which I look at the world and all events that I ever experience. And the mindset he's talking about here is the mindset of the gospel. This same man who wrote this, the apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, I never look at anybody except through the lens of the cross. That's my mindset. I see every person that I ever meet through the lens of the cross. Through the lens of the cross. Are you a human being? (laughs) If you are, that means Jesus took on the same humanity you have in order to rescue you from the effects of sin, which was primarily alienation from God. We were far from God. And so he came and did that. And so he explains that they have this same mindset. And they're controlled by that mindset. You, you, you just can't help but looking at people completely differently when that mindset is controlling your heart. And then the second thing he mentions is they're enduring, op- they're, they're being faithful to him as he endures opposition. He puts it, he says, my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, that's suffering for Paul. He suffered prison, he suffered beatings, he suffered all kinds of things he tells us about in 2 Corinthians. He, he was beaten and beaten and, and thrown into prison and all kinds of things happened to him. And he says they became partners with him in those things because they understood that God uses opposition in our life. If you want to know why when you, the next trial you have, the next trial that comes in your life, I mean, whether it's huge, massive, or small, let me tell you why those things come into your life. This is what the Bible says, that God uses these oppositions in order to draw you closer to him. Sometimes he does it because we feel so desperate we turn to him in faith. And we actually expect him to hear us. Because we believe the reason we would turn to God, and you would only turn to God if you believe this, that he's in control of the universe. That there's not one atom in this universe that's in rebellion against God. That God controls all things. You mean, I've had some, I don't want to share those with you, I've had some bad things happen to me that I couldn't figure out why in the world God would allow this to happen. But I discovered why he let it happen, because it changed my life. It turned my heart towards him in a brand new way. I began to trust him and depend upon him and flee to him like I never had before. And so he says, this is what, this is why I feel this way about you because I've seen you go through this. 
I've seen you this process take place in your lives. And then the third thing he mentions is experiencing God's enabling grace. You are all partakers of grace with me. In other words, you've experienced what it's like for God to empower you to do what you couldn't do in your own strength. You know, like that thing that happened the other day in your life? And you wondered, God, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I gave in to that temptation. Why couldn't I just trust you? Well, guess what? He's going to use that in your life to turn your attention towards him. I've told you about this. A friend of mine went to a pastor's conference down in Southern California, and most of these pastors were from uh, ghetto churches. And this one guy told him, we never hire anybody who hasn't suffered great failure in their life so that they know how to empathize with people who are experiencing great failure in their life. One of the great things about the church of Jesus Christ is every local church is filled with people who have failed. You don't have to admit it, but it's true. We have all failed and fallen short. For all have sinned and are continually falling short of the glory of God. And we have come to depend upon Christ's righteousness and not our own. Because sometimes you get to feeling like, you know, I think I could do this. I think I could, I could get it together and live the kind of life that God would naturally uh, bring me into his presence. But then I discover in my daily life that that isn't true. And so I experience failure, but I depend upon him. Now, the, the third thing in verses 9 through 11, where he says, In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Real knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve. And that's what that word means there, approve, dokimazo. That you may approve the things that are excellent. Man, I tell you, I got to tell you, this, this part of the Christian life where you just wished at times that when you think back on things and ways of failure that why couldn't I see the most excellent thing in that situation was simply trusting God and obeying him? Why would I bite into that temptation? And he says, I want, th- I want this, you, you to go through this so that you may approve the things that are excellent. Approve means that you know they're right. You, f- you feel it in your bones. That's the good thing to do in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. <laughs> he says, I, I'm, I'm praying for you that you experience, you develop an intelligent, discerning love. He's talking about brotherly love. Uh, it's the foundation of being partners in the gospel. The extent of the love that he's asking for is unceasing abundance. He's praying for them that they would love the things that are truly valuable. Not the stuff that you're so tempted to love and elevate in your life, but the things that are truly excellent. And he gives two reasons that they have to develop this kind of intelligent, discerning love. So that you can approve things that are excellent, that is live a gospel lifestyle. Let me give you an example of what a, a gospel, how you can fail at a gospel lifestyle. There's, an, and there's, an, there's a, uh, a description of failing to walk according to the gospel in the book of Galatians. And it's regarding the apostle Peter. The apostle Peter failed in, in walking according to the gospel at one point as Paul confronted him to the face there in Galatians. And what he did, he gave in to the temptation to be a racist And Christ confronted him, and he said, that's not walking in line with the gospel. And Peter repented. And see, there's all kinds of ways that we can fail to walk in line with the gospel. And this is what he is praying for them, that they would understand that which is excellent so that they would value what's truly valuable and walk in line with the gospel. And then secondly, he says, so that you'll be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ. Uh, since the word sincere here means uh, tested by the sun. If you bought p- pottery in the first century, in a, you know, let's say you're walking along there, somebody's got a bunch of pottery out here they're selling. The way you checked it is you took that piece of pottery and you held it up to the sun and you looked through it and you could see all the imperfections. 
If the sunlight shone through it, it meant there was something wrong with it. And he says, I want your lives to be that way. That the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ would shine in your heart and reveal the fact that you're whole and complete through the gospel. So you can be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ. I don't know what it would be like. Uh, I've never been any pastor like this, but and I don't know what it would be like to be like this where you were just perfect and you never did anything wrong. You never succumbed to any kind of temptation. And so you could stand up and say, follow me as, as I live perfectly before Christ. And all of us know that somebody that did that would be a phony, wouldn't we? And so what Paul is saying, I want you to grow in the gospel, this good news of salvation through Christ, so that you in faith in Christ can be sincere and spotless. And then he prays for them for the fruit of righteousness, which only Jesus can produce. Jesus, and what he's talking about here, I want to make clear this. This isn't justification by faith alone. This is talking about a changed heart. This is talking about what happens after you're justified, after you're declared righteous and you're right with God. Then Jesus Christ begins to fill your heart with something, his righteousness, his practical righteousness. You could have followed Jesus around throughout his whole life on earth for 33 years and you would have never seen him be disobedient to his father. He had that kind of character. And he says that, Paul says, I'm grateful that Jesus is, has filled your heart with that same righteousness. And then in, in, he says, I also want you to have the mindset of Jesus. Now, I, I, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but in chapter two, it tells us what the mindset of Jesus was. It's one of the primary words in this epistle. And the mindset of Jesus was, he did not think it was worth, it was robbery to be equal with God. He was equal with God. But he said he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant because of his mindset. And his mindset was humility. You know what humility is? In the Bible, what humility is, it isn't wringing your hands and saying, I'm no good, I'm worthless. That's not what humility is. Humility is when you see yourself as a servant to the person that you're with or you're talking to. Humility is when you see yourself as being placed there by God in order to serve them. Now, when I say serve them, I mean serve them. You remember when Jesus served? We looked at that. Oh, I guess it was at our other meeting. But but when, when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and he put on the apron of a slave and he bowed down and he washed their feet... Can you imagine that? That's why I want to make it clear that in the, in the New Testament, it doesn't give us any honorific titles. Pastors and deacons and so forth, they're not honorific titles. They're practical, functional titles. We're all just servants of the servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the mindset we're supposed to have is the mindset Jesus had was his humility I don't know, have you ever thought about this? What would it be like for Jesus, the eternal Son of God, to be here on earth and he's facing judgment? And you, and you can see he's facing this, this beating and mistreatment, a phony trial, and then they hang him on a cross and, and execute him. And it did affect him, didn't it? We saw this where it affected him. He, he was, it affected him emotionally as he was facing this, because not because of the physical pain, because he was going to be separated from his father on our behalf. Because the father made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we could become the righteousness of God. And so what, what, Peter, what Paul prays for them is, I want, what, I want this to have great impact on you, because you have been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. And if, if his righteousness, if the righteousness, the righteous character of Jesus Christ is working in my heart, it's going to be seen. It's going to be seen. First of all, by my wife. <laughs> She'll be the first one to see it, right? 
or the person you're closest to, that person's going to see it. Do you have the character of Jesus Christ? Can you humble yourself and serve others? Or do you always have to be served? My son went to a camp where all the campers, this, he was in, I think, junior high, all the campers had to address the guy that was leading this camp as pastor so-and-so. I forget his name. And he made him use that title, Pastor, you know, Joe or whatever. But not only that, he made his wife call him Pastor Joe in front of all the kids. Because he was trying to get across to them that he was in an elevated position. And they should treat him like an elevated man. Let me tell you, that is not what Jesus did, is it? In fact, the one time a guy comes, a leader in Israel comes to him in the cover of night in John 3 and says, you know, we, the leaders of this country, we who are in this high, high position, we know that you must have come from God because of the things you say and the things you do. And Jesus said, oh, you can't. You can't see the kingdom of God and you can't enter the kingdom of God until you're born again. Your opinion doesn't matter. You don't have the ability to judge. You see what he was doing? He was saying this, this idea of us being elevated in, in, in our humanity above others is ridiculous. We are servants of Christ. And because we're servants of Christ, we're servants of one another. And then finally, the Apostle Paul in another place in Romans 5, 5 says, the hope that you give by going through trials will never disappoint you. What he means by that is when you go through a horrible trial and you trust God and God brings you through it and you see the hand of God in that trial, he says it produces a hope in your life that will never disappoint you. That means shame you. You know how it is when you're hoping for something and you begin to kind of tell people, oh yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is, I'm getting this job uh, that's going to pay $500,000 a year. And I'm, it's, I'm in the last phase of it right now. Oh, really? And then you don't get the job, and you have to come back, and the guy says, did you get the job? No. That's being shamed down because you have, your hope has not been realized. He says this hope, the hope in God, the hope that comes through your trials, and you trust in the living God, the one who brings you through that, You'll never be disappointed. He's going to do above and beyond what you're hoping because he's a faithful father. He's a good, good father, as we sing, isn't he? He's a good, good father. And so he closes this way in this, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment, all discernment. That is so you can really tell what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's not so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This verse is burned in my heart this week. I just can't get over it. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I love justification by faith. That means that God declared you to be righteous based upon Christ's righteousness. This is the other side of the truth. This is Christ putting his character in you so that the way you live is like Jesus. What people see coming out of your heart is the righteousness, the practical righteous character of Jesus Christ. Don't you want to be like Jesus? Wouldn't it be something to be like Jesus, to love people the way Jesus loved people? That's what I want. And this is what he says about them, that he's praying for them. And so I assume it's okay to pray that for one another. That God would expand this, this righteous character of Christ in your heart until it controls your life. And it's seen in your everyday life, your interaction with people. I had a guy on the phone the other day when I was talking to, I was trying to get something straightened out. And I was getting a little exercise. And the guy says to me, Sir, would you mind not interrupting in every sentence I try to finish? Let me just finish my sentence. And my wife was standing there. It was on the speakerphone. And she says, You are. <laughs> and so I said, Yes, sir. I will. I'll keep my mouth shut. It's amazing, isn't it? 
how God's able to humble us. He's able to humble us. And he's able to bring us right to where he wants us. I, I, somebody sent me a, a sermon last night that I listened to a little bit of him. And the, it was, the guy was answering the question, does God love every person? And I listened to a little bit of it and I thought, you know the bigger question? Do you love God? That's really the question, isn't it? Do you love God? You remember Martin Luther, what he said? They asked him that. He said, love God, sometimes I hate him. Because he doesn't always do what I want him to do. But when you realize who he is, when the Holy Spirit makes it a reality in your heart of who he is, you realize that you can love this God who sent his son into the world that stooped all the way down to where we are and stood in our place and suffered what I deserved in order that he might give me forgiveness and eternal life and I'll be able to be in his presence in the future. Let me pray for us. Our Father, as we uh, have gathered together to worship you today, to extol you, to lift up praise to you, we understand that our ability to praise you is so minuscule in comparison to who you are. You are so glorious. You are so magnificent. And you have given us a salvation that we can't even describe. It's overwhelming to think about this profound salvation that you have given to us simply because we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray for us today, Father, that you would use us in our world right now in, the, in the, the situation we're living in, the people that are, we're around all the time, the people that you've placed in our lives, in our path, I pray that we could represent Christ with a heart that's filled with his righteousness. Father, please empower us to live for you. Please empower us to love you. Please empower us, Father, to love one another sacrificially and to humbly serve the world with joyfulness. Lord, we want to be instruments in your hands. And we ask you to do that in Christ's name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.